Father, it is my delight right now to sit and receive spiritual bread, spiritual drink. I want my soul to be satisfied. I want to see Jesus as I have already in the songs. I want to have a longing to lift my hands. I want to have a longing to move my tongue in praise and witness. I want to be satisfied by Christ. I want this church to be satisfied by Christ. Even when we can't meet together in the building, even when we're waiting for a disease to be vanquished, even as our hearts break for calamity across the nation and world, our only hope for daily existence is to be satisfied by your unfailing love that we would sing for joy and daily be glad in you. Father, very few people in this world, in regard to how many there are, are satisfied today. They're not feasting. They're not walking with you, towards you. They don't know you. We beg you for the privilege, Lord, even through a pandemic, even through national, global chaos, that the Word of God, how much glory you would get, Lord, if the Word of God would spread more rapidly now when things are so messed up. Satisfy us, Jesus. Satisfy us, Jesus, with your presence, with your Holy Spirit. Now, Lord, I pray specifically for those whose bodies have been weakened even this week in Spartanburg, in the hospital, weakened with disease, weakened with covid weakened with surgery. Father, we long for you to breathe when we're breathing is hard, for you to help them walk where walking is hard. Bless doctors as they're up against odds they've, they've not encountered. Father, we pray for mercy. Father, that's the only word that we can think of with everything that's going on around us. You would give us what we don't deserve, what we desperately need, mercy. Now may the mercy of God through the power of the Holy Spirit fall upon Caleb so that these uncommon words, these common words, normal words, black and white on paper, we would realize soon they're from heaven, from God. Give us the ministry of reconciliation to the world that we might help them find their creator and be saved by him. In Jesus' name I pray. Good morning, church. It's great to see you today, and it is such a thrill for me to be here to have this chance to share. Demi and I have grown to love this church and, and the, the part of becoming a part of this body and this family here. Uh, raising our family as a part of this church has been such a, such a joy for us. Demi was able to join me today for our first time back in the building, and she, she actually brought with her our two-month-old son, Stokes. And it's so cool for me to see that his first chance to, to come through these doors here at Hope Point. We, we look forward to what, what kind of a life he'll get to live as a part of this body. Um, I don't get the chance to share very often, and so there's a lot I want to say. Um, and so I want to just jump right into it. We're going to be looking at the book of 2 Corinthians 5, um, looking verses 16 through 21. So as you turn there, let me let you know what's going on in this, in this section of the text. Paul has just finished giving some encouragement 
um, giving the, some verses that are oftentimes words you hear at funerals. You know, I said encouragement at funerals, but uh, he, he's talking uh, at the end of chapter 4 and early in chapter 5 about this life past this life, the life that we're awaiting as, as Christians. He kind of sums it up um, in, in verse 2 of chapter 5 when he says, For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. He, he calls the, the body we live in now the, this tent, this temporal thing that we're, we're in while we await uh, what's ahead for us. We, we know what, what's ahead for the, for the Christian is so much greater than, than what we have now. And so now while we're here, there's this sense of groaning. There's a longing to put on our, our heavenly dwelling. Um, groaning for us, we, we, we can identify with this in 2020 as we wear masks in 95 degree weather and um, wherever else we have to put them on sitting here in the sanctuary right now. Um, groaning might be an understatement for us um, here halfway through 2020. Hashtag way to start the decade. I mean, it's been just a madness for the, the last several months. We, we get this sense of groaning, this sense of longing for something better than this. And, and this argument that Paul has been making throughout uh, this, the end of chapter 4 and early in chapter 5, it can almost make the Christian begin to ask the question, why, why does God leave us here? Why, why don't we experience relationship with Christ, come, become aware of our sin, uh, be reconciled to God, and then he just beam us up? Why, why can't we just go ahead and get there? Why do we have to stay here? It seems like it would be so much easier if we went ahead and joined him uh, in, in heaven, joined him being, being with him uh, completely. Why are we stuck here? And that's a, that's a question that Paul answers in the passage that we're going to look at today in verses 16 through 21. I want to I begin, though, with, with verse 17 because I think it helps us uh, really catch uh, the, the mission and, and the work that's been done. So look with me in verse 17 of chapter 5. Paul writes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Notice the, the, the phrase stuck right in the middle there. New creation is what should really stand out to us. And there's something to that phrase that kind of brings some tension for us. All right, Now, we know in one sense what Paul is referring to here is the fact that when, when you are in Christ, what a, what a beautiful thing to be in Christ that you are instantly made a new creation. He says, the old has passed away. Behold, the, the new has come. Uh, to put it another way, uh, as Charles Spurgeon says, we are not saved by evolution, but by creation. This is not a, an ongoing, it's not, a, it's not a thing that we have to earn or, or develop into to be in Christ. It's, it happens instantly by him recreating us from the inside out. This is what Jesus tried to get through the, the head of Nicodemus when he, when he speaks of being born again. Um, we're, we're not, when, we're, when we want to be in Christ, we're not like the unpaid intern who has to work his way up in order to really be a part of the pack, right? We are instantly brought into the family of God. We are instantly made in Christ when we are reconciled to him. Uh, with, when the prodigal son returned home, he didn't become a servant. He didn't have to earn his way back in. The father ran to meet him. And this is what God does to us when we come to him, he makes us this new creation. But there's also a degree in which we see this new creation and we know it's referring to something that's kind of far off. It's this thing that's happened already, but there's more to it. We know that there's a reference here to the new creation that will be completed when Christ returns, where, where his kingdom will be made more complete and more global in, in, in sphere. And so there, there's this already, but not 
Not yet. Not, not, quite, not quite done yet. When we, t- we talk about being a new creation. And that's why, as Paul mentioned earlier, we're still in this tent and we're still groaning. Because we're awaiting the fulfillment, the, the fullness of that new creation. But I believe there's something for us to do here besides just groaning while we are awaiting our heavenly bodies. While we are in this tent, there's a work for us to be doing. And, and that's where, where Paul is headed. Okay, So um, as we look at the next verse, 2 Corinthians 5, 18, he says, and, um, All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. I've highlighted this, this first part. All this is from God. And I did, did so because oftentimes when we talk about the work of reconciliation, the work of making enemies friends, the work of restoring relationship, we, we tend to almost only look at the character of Jesus because oftentimes God gets a pretty bad rap when it comes to reconciliation. We see his, his wrath poured out on nations throughout the Old Testament. We see his, his anger oftentimes. And so sometimes we miss the fact that reconciliation by design always, always, always starts with God. God is the initiator. God is the subject of all reconciliation. Which shouldn't surprise us because no one else could initiate reconciliation. All of us have offended God. All of us have sinned and by our sin separated ourselves from relationship with God. We, we have no power to reconcile that relationship. There's nothing that we could offer to make that a possibility. We're, we're better off trying to recreate ourselves than we are trying to reconcile relationship with God. And so, uh, as he mentioned in the previous verse, he's made us a new creation. He's recreated us, just like in, in Genesis 1, where he created us from nothing. Now he's recreated us through a work that only he could provide, and he alone receives the credit for initiating that reconciliation. Four times in the passage we look at today, you will see... Uh, the term reconciled or some form of that word reconciled. And every time the subject of that word is God, he is always the one initiating reconciliation. So praise be to God that he would seek to reconcile us to himself. No one else could do that for us. No one else could do it. Now, I'm an English teacher. So one of the things that I always tell my students when they are reading a text is look for tension. If you find some tension, there's usually some meaning behind it. And I see a little bit of tension in this, in this verse. So notice it says first that Christ reconciled us. You see the ED at the end there, right? We usually use an ED for a past tense verb, right? Here Paul's using the aorist tense. But then right after we see that, this word reconciled, we see him say he's given us the ministry of reconciliation. And you might ask the question, if We've already been reconciled. If it's this completed thing, this thing that's been done, why is it still an ongoing thing? Why is, there st- why is there any need for a ministry of reconciliation if Christ has already reconciled us? And it's a great question to ask. And there's tension in the text. There's usually a, a meaning that's really important for us to discover. So what we need to see here is, yes, Christ, what he did on the cross in that moment in history, that single moment in history, was enough to reconcile us to God. It was enough to appease the wrath of God for sin for all who would believe. But, but, Scripture makes it clear that people can't believe something they've never heard. And in order for them to hear, someone must deliver a message. And in this passage, Paul calls that message the message of reconciliation. And so what you see here in the midst of this tension is the beautiful partnership that God has designed 
for us as the body of Christ to partner with Christ in the ministry of reconciliation. He did the initial work. He reconciled us to God by giving of himself, by sacrificing his life on the cross. And now in response, we give our lives to the ministry of proclaiming that message where it's never been heard. What a partnership. What a great position to be in that we get to join arms, join, link arms with, with Christ and engage in this ministry of reconciliation, of restoring the relationships that have been broken between God and man. This is a beautiful thing. And Paul's going to continue. He's going to kind of, it seems like he's repeating himself. He's, in, a, in a sense, he's kind of clarifying what he just said. So this might sound repetitive, but in verse 19, he says, That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Again, we see what Christ has done to reconcile us, and then we see a task given to us, uh, the, the message. In this case, it's the message of reconciliation. But before you go thinking there, this is just a, a repetition of verse 18, notice something that, that changed just a little bit. So in verse 18, it said, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Look at what he does here in verse 19. You're going to see a little shift in what Paul has done. Watch this. Now he says, in Christ God was reconciling the world. So in verse 18, Paul's identifying that, that what Christ did on the cross reconciles us to God, the, the body of Christ. Those of us who have already heard, we've been reconciled to God. We've, been, we've restored relationship with God because of what Christ has done. But what happens there is a global focus comes into play. Now because of that initial work, God is reconciling the world to himself. And how is he reconciling the world to himself? Through us. Through us. Entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Beautiful connection there. God didn't save us simply to save us so that we could join him one day in, uh, in eternal bliss. God has saved us. He's reconciled relationship with us and entrusted something to us. We have been entrusted the task of proclaiming the message of reconciliation. Beautiful responsibility to be given, again, as I already mentioned. Now, notice sandwiched right in the middle of what God has done for us and what he's called us to do is this phrase, not counting their trespasses against them. Um, this is a, another way of looking at reconciliation. There are trespasses, and those trespasses should be punished because God is a just God, but he has chosen not to count their trespasses against them. Paul's, Paul's stealing something from the psalmist here uh, when he said in, in Psalm 32, verse 2, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Not that there's no iniquity to count. There's definitely a, a, a full supply of iniquity. Trust me. But God has chosen not to count those iniquities against this, this man, those who have been entrusted the message of reconciliation. More on that to come. We'll, we'll explain how that's a possibility as we get further into the text. But that's, that's where Paul takes that from. So, so uh, to think about it this way, if we think about not counting the trespasses against them and what he's really saying in verses 18 and 19, John MacArthur puts it like this. Reconciliation is the divine provision by which God's holy displeasure can be appeased. Notice the word holy displeasure. God is displeased when he looks at the world because of our, our bent towards sin, because we have rejected him in every way possible. But that displeasure can be appeased. It is the divine provision by which hostility, there is hostility in the world amongst ourselves, but ultimately there is hostility between us 
and vertically in that relationship between us and God. And it can be removed. It is the divine provision by which sinners can be restored to him. Praise God that there is such a thing as reconciliation. This is what it looks like. So, now we get the call. Verse 20, we've been told God has reconciled us to himself through Christ, given us the message of reconciliation. What does that look like? Paul's going to give us a title. He's going to give us a role. He does this often in his writing where he, he takes this common role or title that, that we have in our human institutions and he gives it sort of a spiritual element. So he says here in verse 20, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. You see what he calls us here? We've been given a message and now he's calling us ambassadors, ambassadors. Now, he, he's taking from the word uh, presbyo. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but it's the Greek word presbyo, and it has this, uh, this connotation of an elder or a figurehead, a representative. Um, and in a political sphere, we know what, what the word ambassador means. It's a representative from one nation or one sovereign rule that goes somewhere else, right? And they're representing that homeland somewhere else. Well, why is this the title that Paul chooses to give us? Why, why not something else? I think there's a couple reasons for it. Well, let me tell you three things that I think about an ambassador and what it looks like to be an ambassador of Christ. First off, it's a, it's a humble role. You're accepting a humble role when you choose to be an ambassador. Uh, because it's not your words that you are speaking. It's not your opinions that you are speaking. And it's not your name that you are proclaiming. It's someone else's. An ambassador is humbly taking on the, uh, the perspective of someone else and representing that person to whatever nation they've been placed in. Right. So it's a, it's a position of humility. However, at the same time, it's a very proud uh, responsibility to have. There's a sense of boldness that comes with it because of the fact that you are representing a sovereign ruler and you do so proudly. If you're an, an ambassador in another nation, you're proud of the country you come from. I remember being in Sri Lanka where I lived for six years and riding through the, the capital city of Colombo and getting up to the American embassy and seeing for the first time in a couple years the American flag uh, waving. And there was this sense of pride that Oh, yeah, that's, that's, that's where I come from. Um, an ambassador is someone who proudly represents their sovereign. And how much more for us as ambassadors for Christ that we don't just represent some president or some ruler or some, some king. We represent the ruler of history. We represent the God of the nations, the, the creator and sustainer of all things. And did you see what, what verse 20 says? It says, he is making his appeal through us. What a, what a proud position we ought to have as ambassadors. The third thing, though, is it's, you're also choosing, if you want to be an ambassador, to embrace a life um, as an outsider. There's no need for an American to go and be the American ambassador to America. That would be redundant. That would be pointless. Uh, no need, Right? The whole point of being an ambassador is that you go somewhere foreign. You go somewhere else and represent your homeland while you're there. And so when Paul calls us to be ambassadors, we, we got to accept the, the responsibility that that's a calling to live as an outsider wherever we are. This doesn't have to be a geographical sort of um, outsider mentality. I'm not necessarily saying that if you're going to be a Christian, you have to live in another country than where you're from. 
uh, although that may be the case, and we'll, we'll mention that later. But really more what he means here is just where we live, we, we should be different than those around us. There should be something in us that looks different. Uh, the book of First Peter spends so much time developing this idea of what it looks like to be an exile, an outsider, an alien in the place that you live because you're living for something beyond this world. As citizens of heaven, as representatives of the sovereign ruler of, of the world, wherever we are, we are ambassadors. We are outsiders to the world around us. And this is what Paul calls us to. Now, um, one way of putting it, uh, as what I heard from a commentator named Colin Cruz, he says, the God who reconciled the world to himself through the death of his son now actually appeals to the world through his ambassadors to be reconciled to him. This is such a, an, if you think about it, really a ludicrous thing that from the opening pages of the Bible that God would initiate relationship with humanity, they would almost instantaneously break that relationship because they thought something else was better. And really, if you think about it, the Bible probably should have ended right there. We, we should have a pretty short Bible. And yet, God, through his sovereignty, because by nature he is a reconciler, spends the, the rest of those 66 books in pursuit of, of us to reconcile us. And he's chosen to use those of us who at once were at enmity with him as the mouthpiece to make that happen. God is appealing to the nations. He is appealing to your place of work. He's appealing to your neighborhood to be reconciled to him through you, through the way you live your life and the words you speak, the message of reconciliation that you put on display. And we see Paul doing this in the second half of that verse 20. He says, we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. Listen to the urgency of Paul's speech here. We implore you. He's begging He's urging. He's, he's just calling people to be reconciled to God. But what, what really stands out here is who he's addressing here. That word you is really kind of a direct address to the audience of, that he's writing to. Now, in a broader sense, yes, we are. We're imploring, imploring the world to be reconciled to God. But in this case, scholars seem to agree that he's actually referencing the church to whom he's writing, the church in Corinth. Paul is not deceived by religiosity and outward appearances. He knows that there are people, even in the church of Corinth, who have not fully understood what it means to be reconciled to God, who have not chosen to fully surrender to the work that God has done to save them. And he's imploring them, while you can, please be reconciled to God. Now remember, verses 18 and 19 show us that when we're reconciled to God, what comes with that is an, the entrusting of a responsibility. So perhaps there are people who have understood what Christ has done, who have been reconciled to him. Their sins have been erased. Their iniquities are not counted against them. But they have not made the connection yet that there is a responsibility, that they've been entrusted to something. And so perhaps this is a warning that wake up, do something. Look at what Christ has done for you. Now go and reach those around you. Part of being reconciled to God is that you have a heart to reconcile others. You want them to enter into what you have experienced. And this is what he says to us right here. Now, we see a holy God. We see a broken world. No, no questions need to be asked about that. I think we all can agree with that. And we see that God has restored. He's made a way to restore things. He's made a way to reconcile us. But we have to ask the question, how? How is any of this possible? 
How can God just choose not to count sins against us? How, how can they not be paid for? And so very briefly in one verse, Paul's good that way, he explains to us how it's possible that this can be a reality. And I just want you to marvel at what truth is presented to us here in this verse. Verse 21, for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is how we are reconciled to God. This way and no other way. This is it. Now, when we look at that, there's a couple things, particularly this, this phrase, to be sin, that might cause some trouble. There's, there's a couple different interpretations as to what he means here. So the screen might get kind of busy here, but I, I want you to see the verse and see what those three interpretations are. So just, just try to bear with me here. So here's, here's the verse, three interpretations very quickly. Some might say, and there are actually many who, who would follow this, that what he means here is that Jesus actually became a sinner. That he became a sinner, he paid for his sins on the cross, and then he went to hell for three days to, to be punished for that sin, the sin of the world, and then when he rose again, he, he went on to glory. There, there are people who would believe that message. Please hear me say, that is not the truth. It can't be the truth. If it were, then he's contradicting himself in, the, in this verse. How can he be a sinner if he knew no sin? It, it tells us very clearly he did not know sin. He, he never sinned. This would break the entire mold of who we say Jesus is, the sinless one, the one who was fully man and yet never gave in to the sins that we always do. It, it, it can't be that. It can't be that. Others would say that, that what he means here is that Jesus is acting as a sin offering. And they say that because the word became sin. The, that word hamartia is oftentimes used uh, in the Old Testament for sin offering. It kinda, sometimes you see it as sin, sometimes it's sin offering. And so they're, they're saying that maybe this means he was a sin offering for us. In the same way that in the Old Testament we see, uh, we see the practice of the sin offering at the temple. Um, and while there is, this is a, a helpful way of seeing it, it's still kind of incomplete. There's still more to it than just that. And to go with that, there's very little reference to this kind of a meaning in the New Testament. Only one other time in the New Testament do we see that, that, that phrase, that word hamartia, and it, it's still not quite the, the same context. So, so a more complete answer for us as to what he means when he says God made him to be sin is that Jesus actually took upon himself, himself excuse me, the consequence of sin. He, he took upon himself, even though he was righteous, the consequence of sin. Um, as Isaiah 53 puts it, surely he has borne our griefs. Notice, we take responsibility for the grief and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for, again, our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Notice the repetition. Our, our, our. Not his, our. Um, we have been the ones who offended God, who sinned, and Christ actually traded with us. It's a, it's a trade. It's an exchange that is taking place. As, as the writer of Hebrews puts it, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. I want to show you really quick one more reason why it has to be that. Notice what we get out of it. So, so Christ became sin. And what did we become? We became righteous. We became the righteousness of God. Now, if those things are going to be parallel then they really have to, like, they, they've got to agree with each other. And we haven't done anything to be counted righteous. Therefore, Christ didn't need to do anything, like act anything he sinned to be counted as sin. It's a, a transaction. Quite literally what's happening here is Christ was punished for our sin 
and we were rewarded for Christ's righteousness. That's just the simplest way I can think to put it. Uh, nothing we could do could, could make us righteous, but he has done it on our behalf. So this is the beautiful picture of the gospel. What strikes me so much about it is that, uh, excuse me, let me get back to where I was. What strikes me so much ab- about this reality is that, you know, we think of those who have not believed, those who are outside of God's grace. If they stay that way, it will take them all of eternity, all of eternity to appease the wrath of God. So how is it then that in one moment, in one moment on the cross, Christ is somehow able to completely, completely appease God's holy wrath for all of us, all of our sins of those who would believe? How can he do that in one moment when it takes a sinner an entire eternity to pay for his sin? That shows you the infinitely valuable worth of Christ's righteousness. He is so infinitely worthy that one act of sacrifice on the cross is enough to pay for all the sins of those who would come to follow him in one moment. And Paul says that righteousness has been given to us. We have that righteousness. Wow. Wow. Beautiful. Now, what are we going to do with this here? We've been reconciled to God. We have been made new. We have been restored to him when we didn't deserve it. What, what, do, we, what do we make of this? What do we do with it? Well, it kind of takes us back to where we began. I skipped intentionally. I skipped verse 16 um, because I wanted to kind of focus here at the end. Notice what he says here in verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. He says this right after saying um, in verse 15 and 14, talking about the reality that Christ has died once for all. And this vision, what we just read again in verse 21, that Christ gave his righteousness to sinners and took our sin upon himself. This reality, when we truly recognize that, when we see it, it completely alters the way we see those around us. Paul says, I I no longer can regard people according to the flesh. What what does he mean by flesh? Well, notice it's the same word he uses to describe Christ's flesh, this word sarka. So we might jump to the conclusion that by flesh, he's talking about fleshly desires, sinfulness. We talk about like the desires of the flesh often. Can't be that because Christ wasn't wasn't a sinner. Uh, So now he was tempted in the same way we were. So he had that, that flesh, but he didn't ever live it out. And oftentimes when we talk about the flesh, we talk about it as the, the acting out of our sin. Really more what I think he's getting at here with the word flesh is the things that make us human, the, the things that we notice when we look at people. We're very good labelers, aren't we? We are very quick judges. Within seconds of meeting someone, we've decided how we feel about them, haven't we? And we look at these, these trivial things, uh, their appearance, their status, their, the way they talk, their race, their gender, their belief system. And pretty quickly, we, we, we draw conclusions about them. And they're oftentimes as far away from the truth as they could be. Paul connects this to the way that he used to regard Christ. There was a time in Paul's life where he regarded Christ as just another man. A man that misled a lot of people that needed to be killed. And when he met Christ... On the road to Damascus, and the, the, his eyes were opened, 
It completely changed the way he saw Christ, this one who redeems us, this reconciler. And when that happens, it doesn't just change the way we see Christ. It changes the way we see everyone. We don't regard people by these trivial things any longer. Our vision of those around us, like Paul's vision of Christ, is radically transformed when we experience reconciliation with God. We are forced to see people in one of two categories. This is it. It's all about their status before God, and they're in one of two spots. They're either a sinner who's been reconciled to God because they have accepted this beautiful message. And if that's the case, then they need you. They need you to encourage them. They need you to disciple them. They need you to pull them alongside you and bring them further in the faith, continuing this process of reconciliation. Or they're in the other category, and they are sinners who are still outside of God's grace. And if that's the case, man, they need you. They need you to speak up. They need you to share with them the message that changed your life. This is the only way, the only way we can regard people any longer. Every person you see is in one of those two categories. We don't have time for, for trivial matters. This is what's important. I want to close with this image for you. Uh, in, the, in the Old Testament book of Ezekiel, the prophet, when he's called in, in, in chapter 3, he is given this title of watchman. It's what God calls him. And I think it's a beautiful analogy of what it looks like to be a Christian in a world that largely, by and large rejects uh, the warnings and the message of God. So here's what, here's what God pretty much told him. Basically, you've got these cities, these fortified cities, and there would be a watchman who stands atop the gate. And what's he doing? He's watching the distance. He's a watchman, so he watches. That's kind of what they do. And as he watches, he is looking for danger that's approaching. Armies that are coming, uh, maybe even natural disasters that are, that are headed this way. You never know what, what might come about. And he is watching, but he can't just watch. When the danger inevitably approaches, something's got to happen. The watchman would pick up his trumpet and he would blow as loud as he could to warn the people in the city who couldn't see over the gate to see that the danger was coming. And when he blew the trumpet, they would be warned and the rest was up to them. It's what, what God says to him in, in chapter 3 and then when he repeats this again in chapter 33, he says, if you warn the people, their blood's on their own head. What they, what they choose to do with it, that's, that's up to them. But you got to be responsible to warn them. Now, the, the harsh part about this, the, the huge task and the, the urgency that comes to the watchman is what God says to him as far as his commission. He says, so you, son of man, I have made a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. And look at what happens if you don't. Verse 8, if you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn from his way, that wicked person shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. God has entrusted to Ezekiel the responsibility of warning the people of Israel that there is, that there is a penalty that must be paid for sin, that there is a price to pay when you reject God. And his calling is to warn them while he still can. And like the watchman who warns them of approaching armies, if he does it, if he makes the warning, he's good. If he doesn't, the people will perish. Guys, people will perish if we don't speak up. People will perish. So it leads me to ask, 
If, 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 I, if I feel this kind of connection to Ezekiel to, to be a watchman, who is inside my walls? Who are the people that are listening for me to blow the trumpet? Who around me needs to be warned of danger that is approaching? That there will be a day when we will all stand before a righteous judge. I know there are people. I think of my spouse. I think of my children. I think of my neighbors. I think of the students that fill my classroom and the teachers that line the halls next to me and the city of Spartanburg. Someone has got to pick up the trumpet and warn them while there is time. And here's the beautiful, the beautiful part about it. We don't just warn them of danger. We have the escape route with us. We have the message of reconciliation that can free them from the danger that's awaiting them. So we, we've got the, 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 the whole package to give them. Let's be faithful to do that. I, I challenge you even today to, to begin thinking, who are the people in my life? That maybe even this week I can begin engaging with this message of reconciliation. This message that Christ who knew no sin became sin so that you could be righteous before God. But church, here's the other really stark reality. I mentioned my family and my school and my neighborhood and, and my community. The stark reality is that there are people all across the globe right now who currently have no one standing atop their wall. No one with a trumpet to blow. And these people are passionately pursuing some God that they've been taught about who doesn't exist to save them. They feel a need to be reconciled. They know it. But there's no one upon the, the, the wall to blow a trumpet and warn them. Shocking. It's scary to me to think of, of what that looks like for much of the world that we live in. Um, matter of fact, there's currently 7,073 unreached people groups in the world we live in. Now, I hate to get numbers out here to, to close, but I, I want you to see that number. To be an unreached people group, that means to be a people group in the world we live in, that connected by language or ethnicity, culture. Um, and to be unreached, it means that less than 2% of your population uh, is a born-again believer, uh, has had access to the life-changing reconciliation of relationship with God. And there are currently 7,073 people groups, people groups like the Algerian people group, where there are 29 million and a half Muslims who right now are outsiders looking in, and they have no idea. Or the Benaya people of India, 29 million people who currently there are no recorded Christians in this people group, no, none. There's nobody to warn them. No one. Just to put that in perspective, that means 4.6 billion people who currently have not been told about this message of reconciliation that we come in and celebrate every week. In case you were wondering, that's 59% of the world that we live in. Over half of our world has zero access, access to reconciliation. So, yes, Please stand atop the wall that God has already given you to be an ambassador in your home and in your neighborhood and in the community that you live in and the place where you work. But also, please, please consider somebody has got to go and warn these people while there is time. And perhaps someone right now listening to this stream 
listening to this video, perhaps it's you. You could be the one to go and, and stand atop the wall of the Algerian people group and blow the trumpet, letting them know that the judge is returning one day and that there is a way to be reconciled to him. I, I hope and I pray that we can have this kind of urgency to see the world as it really is, as Paul said in verse 16, no longer regarding people as flesh, regarding them as sinners standing before a righteous judge. And if that's what we see when we look at people, oh, I hope that launches us into a lifestyle of speaking up, of warning, of sharing this beautiful message before it's too late. So pray for the nations. Give generously to those who are already trying to make it happen over there and maybe even consider going. Someone has to. I want to ask you as I close, who is it? Who is it that's sitting inside your walls? Who is it that God has entrusted to you to share the message of reconciliation? When you get the names, when you see the faces, when it clicks, please speak up. Please warn them. Let them know there is life. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you that you have loved us when we were unlovable. You have seen us when there was nothing good to see. And that you have designed a way for us to be freed from our sins, free from our enmity with you, free from the eternal judgment that we deserve. God, I pray that this understanding, this reality, would send us out into a, a broken world that is desperately in need of reconciliation. Lord, we see the effects of sin all around us. We see broken lives, broken marriages, broken race relationships, broken culture. We, we see it everywhere we look. So God, would you motivate us as your people, as your ambassadors, to make the appeal to the world that there is reconciliation. Return to God. He wants to reconcile you. Make this message the core of who we are as people. God, may we not make it through this week without speaking this message into someone's life. May it be how we approach every work day, every social event, every place we go. May we go bringing the message of reconciliation. And it is in your name, the, the only one who can bring reconciliation, the only one who can reconcile. God, our Father, we pray. Amen.